0: All right, I'll begin our equipping hour time in a word of prayer. Lord, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity once again to look at your word, to think rightly about ourselves, to think rightly about our complex problems that we bring to the table and what is required uh, to fix those problems. We recognize that only your supernatural power is competent to cut the Gordian knot of complicated messes that we make because of our own sinfulness in addition to all the external complications of living in a fallen world. We ask, God, that you would bring clarity to our own hearts and thoughts. May we be steeled in our convictions about our deepest problems and the necessary solutions. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. I'm going to begin this morning by reading from Ecclesiastes chapter 10, verse 1. You can just listen. Dead flies make a perfumer's oil stink, so a little foolishness is weightier than wisdom and honor. You think about the cost of building a perfume. I've never done it. Apparently, it takes a lot of work and expensive ingredients. And one stinky fly... Ruins the whole batch. Uh, The parallel that's given here is you can have lots of wisdom and honor in play, but a little bit of foolishness ruins the whole thing. We were looking last week at the complications of sinful humanity and sinful humanity living in a sinful world. And what does it mean when an entire world of sinful humans mess up the perfume? If one little fly ruins an entire batch of expensive ingredients, how much more so an entire world of humans in rebellion against God? Sometimes the solutions that we come up with to man's complicated problems are worse than the problems themselves. Have you ever experienced this? Many of my home repair projects work out this way. I see a little problem, I'm going to solve that problem I remember one problem in an upstairs bathroom in a home we had in another state. I thought that I would fix a pipe, and then while I'm at it, I'm just going to redo the entire bathroom. And the fix was way worse than the problem, and the pipes exploded in the middle of the night several times and ruined all of the work that had been done to revamp the bathroom. The solution was way worse than the original problem. You may have heard the the extreme efforts that humans have gone to to try to reduce our environmental impact on the earth we live on. Uh, Some of that's commendable, some of it's just humorous. Uh, We've created wind turbines to reduce our carbon footprint, but the environmental impact of a wind turbine on some endangered species of birds is deeply personal. In other words, those birds are impacted physically by the wind turbines and die. And environmentalists have tried to come up with other solutions to the problem created by the solution. You may remember, may remember years ago, I, think, I believe it was 1989, the oil tanker Exxon Valdez, the town is Valdez but the boat was named Valdez, crashed on the rocks, spilled oil everywhere and birds and otters and all kinds of sea life were covered in oil. And the story came out that a couple of otters were rescued from the oil and at a cost of $80,000 per otter were cleaned up from the oil mess and then released into the wild. There's some debate about whether stories have been conflated, but the story's funny enough to tell anyway. These odd two otters were apparently released into the sound and immediately swallowed up by an orca. <laughs> With the watching environmental world in horror. Um, you know, the orca said, hold the dressing and got two tasty otters. We come up with solutions to complicated problems. And the toolbox that sinful humanity has to work with is problematic. We will never come up to solutions to mankind's most difficult problems from mankind's resources. You remember the wind turbines again froze this last polar vortex that affected much of the United States. They froze in Texas and paralyzed the power grid. As a result, lots of people in Texas were without power and people heated their homes in some dangerous ways and people were killed because we're trying to end global warming. Just lots of tragic irony in that humans don't have the resources to solve a bent universe remember ecclesiastes 7:13 god bent the universe who can straighten it nobody we live in a fallen world and we're fallen creatures fallen creatures don't have the resources to fix themselves much less a god cursed world we are fraught with the complications of our own depravity and if we understand sinful man's plight accurately, then we are led to the conviction that only God can extricate man from his helpless and hopeless condition. And we recall what we looked at last week, what Dr. George Zemick has called homardiological complications. We looked at four of those last week, these complications that come from sin, from sin's presence, sin's slavery of humanity, sin's entanglements. We looked at human depravity. We look at the the complication that comes just from sinful humanity being slaves of sin. Individual human depravity. Both universal depravity and total depravity. That means every single human being who has ever lived, aside from the Lord Jesus Christ, has been a sinner. And total depravity, meaning every constitutional aspect of the human being is infected and affected by sin... And these things are true categorically of those outside of Christ. And they are true in residual matters for believers. And those are the internal complications that bring us problems. My sin... And yet there are other complications that come with being a sinner in a sinful world. Uh, The second complication is an external one, and it is Satan, the god of this world, who is the prince of the power of the air, who deceives the world of unbelievers, who infiltrates the church and has a vested interest in local church ministry, who puts traps and snares and stumbling blocks for leaders and for Christians of every sort. In addition to individual human depravity and Satan's activity, we also have the world, what we talked about last week, as collective depravity. It's bad enough when you have one sinner. What happens when you get a whole world of sinners and the peer pressure to conform? And you remember the end of Romans chapter 1. They not only do these very things that they know God disapproves of, they know they will be held accountable for, but they also approve of those who practice them. Right? Misery loves company, depravity loves company, we all just get more comfortable with our sin if everybody is going the same direction all the time and we're just going with the current. And that whole world of depravity, that collective sinfulness, the world, anti-God, driven by Satan, populated by us rebels, then puts this Pressure, collective pressure on everybody to conform. And for Christians who have been rescued from it, we feel that pressure. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world. Do not be squeezed into its mold. In addition to individual depravity and satanic blinding, satanic deception... And in addition to the world or collective depravity, we also have the complication of God himself. We looked last week at judicial hardening. The reality that God gives people over to their sin. It's bad enough that we're sinful. And and our total depravity means our sin-sick selves affect the way we feel and think and will and love and do the Bible's clear about what we talked about last week, the noetic effects of sin. We can't trust how we think. We can't trust how we know. We don't know correctly. Our central nervous system, our command and control center is fundamentally flawed. Ecclesiastes 9 says men's hearts are full of insanity. Jeremiah says they're desperately sick. Romans 1.28, they are depraved, 1 Corinthians 1, we are foolish, unable to understand spiritual things, 1 Corinthians 2, useless in our thinking, 1 Corinthians 3, hardened in unbelief, 2 Corinthians 3, in futility of thinking, Ephesians 4, hostile in mind, Colossians 1, and totally skewed affections as Jesus indicted humanity in John 3. Men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. And when rebellious man has decided to pursue those very things he's given to in his own depravity, God rightly and justly gives him over to greater sin. We saw that in uh, God's dealings with humanity in Romans chapter 1. Professing to be wise, they became fools, exchanged the glory of God for images made to look like mortal things. And God gave them over gave them over, gave them over to further and further wickedness. All of these complications, individual human depravity, satanic blinding, collective depravity in the world, and God's just hardening of hearts, create an impossible situation for human beings. What kind of remedy is there for individual human depravity? What can a depraved human bring to the table to get himself out of his depravity? What can a blind man do about his blindness? What can a lame man do about his lameness? What can a dead man do about his lack of life? The situation for man with only one complication is impossible. This morning, what we want to do is look at God's remedies. Last week was man's problems. This week is God's remedies. What does it take to undo the complicated mess that humanity is in by nature? What is required to cut through the tangled mess that we are, if left to ourselves? And we think about that first problem, individual human depravity. What is the solution to individual human depravity? Well, the solution can only be a supernatural remedy. It can only be a supernatural remedy. It can only be what we would call a theocentric solution... That is, one derived from God, one that redounds to the glory of God. And when God talks about our salvation, included is this doxological theme that from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. That is true of everything in the universe. It is certainly true of man's rescue from sin, his rescue from his helpless state. You know that in John chapter 11, when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead... There was no cooperation from Lazarus. Jesus just uttered the command, Lazarus, come forth. And a dead man who could not do a thing walked out of his own tomb. Jesus said to a man with a withered hand, stretch out your hand. And a man who could not stretch out a withered hand stretched it out. Why? Because there is power in the very command of God through the Lord Jesus Christ for the impossible to be done. For things that didn't exist to come into existence, for things that had no ability to all of a sudden respond. I want you to look at Deuteronomy chapter 10. God's solutions to man's problems have been the story of the scriptures all the way from the beginning. When man fell, we looked at this main service last week. God made a promise. God brought about the solution. God brought a Savior. Notice Deuteronomy 10, and a very reasonable expectation beginning in verse 12. Here Moses is preaching this last sermon to the people of Israel before they go into the promised land without him. Now, Israel, what does Yahweh your God require from you but to fear Yahweh your God, to walk in all His ways, to love Him, to serve Yahweh your God with all your heart, with all your soul, to keep Yahweh's commandments and His statutes, which I am commanding you today for your good? You might ask, what does God want me to do? Just love Him with everything you have all the time without compromise, Just to obey Him all the time without exception? That's all God asks. That's a tall order. But it's not unreasonable. Look at verse 14. Behold, to Yahweh your God belong heaven and the highest heavens, the earth, and all that is in it. What's significant there is the heavens and the highest heavens and the earth obey Yahweh. They come into existence, they are sustained, they are all in order with His commands. And sinful humanity is not in order. It's totally reasonable for the God of the universe to demand obedience from His creatures, to obligate them to do what He expects, to live for His glory. And of all the heaven and the highest heavens and all the earth, God set His affections on Israel, to love them and their descendants, even these people that Moses is speaking to this day. Verse 16, so, Moses says, circumcise your heart and stiffen your neck no longer. For people with hard hearts that needed an internal, supernatural, surgical procedure, and for people with stiff necks in rebellion against God, they needed to be pliable to him How does a stiff-necked, hard-hearted rebel against God dig into his own well of depraved resources and find what God requires for soft-hearted obedience? And yet this command is so appropriate. Circumcise your heart. God here is demanding what they cannot do by their own resources. Near the end of this sermon, Deuteronomy chapter 30, Moses says something else on the same theme. After telling the people that, of course, they will fail, they will disobey... God will keep up his end of the bargain and bringing curses upon them for disobedience. And one day he will bring about blessings on them for obedience. How will that take place? Deuteronomy 30, verse six. Yahweh your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love Yahweh your God with all your heart, with all your soul, so that you may live. Deuteronomy 10, here's the command. Circumcise your hearts, Israel. Deuteronomy 30, verse six. God says, I'll do it. I'll bring about a supernatural remedy to the complex problems of human depravity. This is, of course, a reference to uh, what would become known as the new covenant. And these new covenant promises for a new heart... Jeremiah 4, Jeremiah 30, Ezekiel 11, Ezekiel 18 and 36, Joel 2, they all indicate that God would do something by, his spout, by His spirit, by supernatural power, to bring about what sinful humans could, never do. A fundamental heart change, change of disposition, change of nature that has an ability. spiritual ability, spiritual life to love God to obey God. These things aren't available to to mankind in his depraved state. Listen to the words of Jeremiah 31, "Days are coming declares Yahweh when I will make a new covenant. I will make this with the house of Israel." Verse 33, "I will put my law within them and on their heart I will write it." Verse 34, "I will forgive their iniquity." Ezekiel 11 similarly, "I will take the heart of stone out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may keep my statutes. These are unilateral promises from God to do the things that only God can do. God is the only one who can bring about these kinds of solutions. Man doesn't have it in himself. Listen to Ephesians 2:5. When we were dead in our transgressions, God made us alive together with Christ. And if we're comfortable taking those new heart, soft heart, fleshy heart for stony heart promises that God made to Israel about the new covenant and see the spiritual benefits of new covenant promises being applied to Gentiles in this age, I think it's okay to take the language of new heart even though those are specific promises to Israel, we understand that what God does in the heart is this supernatural activity that begins with Him. Only God gets the credit for making us alive together with Christ. First Peter 1.3 says, God has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. God caused us to be born again. In 2 Corinthians 3.14, their minds were hardened until this very day at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted. Paul is speaking about unbelieving Israel, but it is removed in Christ. The veil of blindness, that is human depravity, is removed in Christ. God does the removal. 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new what? What? A new creature, a new creation. The old things pass away, new things come. When you think about the noetic effects of sin or the the effects of sin on the brain, you remember the egg and the frying pan. Uh, This is your brain, and this is your brain on drugs. This is your brain on depravity. It doesn't think right. How does that get fixed? get fixed by what Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 2.16. The natural man doesn't understand the things of the Spirit of God because they're spiritually appraised, but we have through the apostolic teaching, through the New Testament doctrine, the mind of Christ. God has graciously revealed His will to us through His Word, and we have our minds renewed. We begin to think God's thoughts after Him. We have an ability, a desire, and a resource to think not as natural men, but as spiritual men. Nothing short of new birth is required. Turn to John chapter 3. On birthday celebrations, we often say happy birthday to each other. I kind of like to tell people, thank you for being born. Right? Catches people off guard just a little bit. Well, I didn't really have anything much to do with that. And if they're a believer, I like to follow that up by saying, well, thank you for being born again. Yeah, I didn't have much to do with that either. That's why Jesus used this illustration in John 3. You must be born from above. Jesus is speaking with Nicodemus Verse 3, Jesus said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? He can't enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit. Don't be amazed at this. The wind blows where it wishes, you hear the sound of it, you don't know where it goes, where it came from, so is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said, how can these things be? And Jesus said, are you the teacher of Israel and you don't know these things? Nicodemus should have been clued into to the solution. The solution to man's problems was never going to come from man. It could only come from what God had planned from the beginning, what God had revealed in the Old Testament about a new heart and the working of his spirit. And Nicodemus, what Nicodemus needed was not his lineage, his heritage, or any effort that could come from human flesh. He needed a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit in the heart to overturn this fundamental homardiological complication. Human depravity. What does it take to overturn the internal complication of human sin? Nothing short of a miracle. Nothing short of the impossible. Nothing short of the miraculous. Nothing short of raising of the dead. Of course, God uses means to this end, the preaching of the gospel, prayer, God's word, But nothing short of the miraculous is required to overcome this problem. That's the internal complication. Let's think about those external complications. Again, man is, an impos- is in an impossible situation if the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers, if he is at the helm of the greatest conspiracy theory humankind has ever known. Everybody's been in on it. Every king, every pauper, everybody in between has been in on this great grand conspiracy. Turn again to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We looked at the problem last week. Let's look at the unbelievable solution. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning in verse 3. If our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. In whose case? In the case of the perishing who are blinded, how did they get that way? The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Remember when Jesus said, light has come into the world, but men love darkness rather than the light. The light came in and men didn't recognize it as light. And like cockroaches scurrying for another cold, dark, damp hiding place when you shine the light on where they are. Sinful humanity ran from the light when it came to earth, extinguished the light when he came to earth. And why? Because Satan has blinded the minds so they would not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. What is the solution? Look down at verse 6. Remember God who said, light shall shine out of darkness. Remember when God commanded light and light was? God spoke to something that did not exist and by commanding it to shine, he commanded it into existence and a non-existent thing called light obeyed the voice of God by coming into existence and shining. The God with that kind of power, verse 6, is the one who has shown in our hearts To give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Look at the parallels between verse 6 and verse 4. Men are blinded so they might not see the light of the gospel. And in verse 6, it is the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. Notice up in verse 4, it is the gospel of the glory of Christ. And in verse 6, it is the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And then in verse 4, Jesus is said to be the image of God... And in verse 6, we see the glory of God in the face of Christ. What is God doing in these two verses, verse 4 and verse 6? He is showing us the only solution to satanic blindness is God's supernatural command into the heart of natural man to make him appreciate what has always been glorious, the infinite second person in the Trinity, in the person of Jesus Christ as the good news of the gospel, the Messiah, the anointed one, the image of God come taking on human flesh to rescue us from sin. The objective facts of who Christ is and what he did were there. But until God turns on the lights in the heart, shines the light of his truth into the heart, pierces through the darkness of satanic blinding, men are still blind. And what do blind men do in the darkness? Scramble around for solutions that they know not what they are. Light is so helpful. You try to get out of a dark room, you need to turn the lights on so that you don't trip over all the things in your way. If you can't turn the lights on, you can't see what's there, you stumble around in darkness. And that is the situation of individual humanity, and collective humanity under satanic blindness. Think about Satan as the accuser of the brethren. Only God can bring a solution to this reality. Even in our present existence, we, as believers, we looked at Satan's activities in the church and interfering with God's purposes. And he goes before God as the accuser of the brethren. He will be thrown down, as John tells us in Revelation chapter 12. But in Romans 8.33, Paul says, uh, "Ask the rhetorical question, who will bring a charge against God's elect? And the answer to that is no one, not even the accuser of the brethren. It is God who justifies What is the answer to the satanic complications of the totality of sin in the world and in the residual complications for the life of a believer? Only God is the solution. God justifies and his word stands in his courtroom so that the accuser or the brethren, his accusations, have no place. God is the one who declares righteous. Satanic blindness is taken away at new birth. God's resources are available to the believer. James says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. We wield, Ephesians 6, the sword of God's spirit. We hoist the shield of faith to extinguish the fiery darts of our enemy. And as we looked at last week in main service, the God of peace will soon crush Satan. What could any individual human do? against the God of this world? What could any individual sinner blinded by Satan do to even see the depths of his problem, much less solve it? But God and God alone cuts through it. What could any individual believer do against that roaring lion who seeks those he can devour? Our hope is in God. We trust in God and in his resources, his supernatural resources, his help which is stronger than all. Think about that third complication and it is the world. That collection of rebels against God. One depraved sinner is bad. A whole world of them is Much worse, thinking about what human beings were supposed to be, created in God's image, made for God's glory, given a palette of affections for the reflection of an appreciation of who God is. Thomas Boston says this about the condition of man after the fall. The heart that was made according to God's own heart is now the reverse of it. "...a forge of evil imaginations, a sink of inordinate affections, a storehouse of all impiety. Behold the heart of the natural man as it, as it is opened in the text of Scripture. The mind is defiled, the thoughts of the heart are evil, the will and affections are defiled." The imagination of the thoughts of the heart is that whatever the heart frames within itself by thinking, such as judgment, choice, purposes, devices, desires, every inward motion, or whether the frame of the thoughts of the heart, the frame, the make, their mold of all of these is evil. From the first day to the last day, in this state, they are in midnight darkness. There is not the glimmering of the light of holiness in them. Not one holy thought can ever be produced by the unholy heart. Oh, what a vile heart is this. What a corrupt nature is this. The tree that always brings forth fruit but never good fruit, whatever soil it be set in, whatever pains be taken with it, must naturally be an evil tree. Calvin said of the image of God in man, whatever remains is so corrupted that it is a frightful deformity. We think about an entire world of people in that condition around, and it puts pressure to conform, even for those who have been rescued from it. What hope is there for anyone to extricate himself from the solidarity in Adam that joins you, cements you to a world of people in Adam with no resources for self-extrication? Nobody can get out of that pit of human depravity, and we certainly can't help each other out of it. Jesus said to his disciples in the upper room in John 15, if you were of the world, the world would love its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, and because of this, the world hates you. What is the rescue from the world and that solidarity in human depravity? God's choice God's kind, gracious rescue. First John 5, John writes, Whatever is born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is the one who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? What is the rescue from the world? God's gracious choice resulting in faith that clings to Christ and overcomes the world. God will have his solutions. The world is passing away, it will one day yield to the kingdom of Christ. This is why Jesus' disciples are commanded to pray, Thy kingdom come. That is, we long for the undoing of the anti-God, satanically driven world system that is in deception and rails against its maker. There's a day coming when all the consecutive kingdoms of the world, all the consecutive empires of mankind will be toppled by that great stone out of heaven which crushes them all and replaces them all. That is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. Satan will be locked up. At the end of that thousand years, he will be cast into the lake of fire. The world will no longer be the culture of the world that John talks about when he says, do not love the world or the things of this world. But the world culture, that is the universal culture on the earth, will truly be a Jesus culture. He will reign on the earth and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. Even his enemies will feign obedience to him. That's when the peer pressure of the earth dwellers will be reversed. Rather than pressure on those who love God to conform to the pattern of this world against God, there will be a world of people who love Christ as he reigns on the earth with peer pressure to make unbelievers fake it. What is the solution to the declining state of our world today? Not our ability to clean it up. Not our ability to partner with unbelievers who have a vested interest in the prosperity of this world to somehow make it a little bit better place. No, the solution to the problems of this world and the problems that the world places on those who love Christ, the only solution to that complication is total surrender, total warfare by God to bring it into subjection and conformity with His plan in the kingdom. Only God can solve that problem. We don't fix depravity's problems with depravity's toolbox. We can't get out from under Satan's rulership in this world by our own resources. We cannot look to the world to solve the problem that is the world. Only God, only God can do these things. The final complication that we looked at was the complication of God himself. There's the very real tragic reality that when unbelievers or those in rebellion against God ask God for more rebellion, he might just give you what you ask for. To be hardened in unbelief, to be cemented in rebellion against God, to ask for darkness and get more blindness, to stop up your ears to God's truth and get stone silence, is a just right good, beautiful judgment from God. God is not mocked. A man reaps what he sows. What a tragedy it is if you stiff-arm God and God gives you the space you think you want to be absent of Him, to face only the wrath of the God upon whom you depend. Look at Romans chapter 3. What is the solution for judicial blindness or even judicial hardening? What is the solution to being given over in greater measure to sin if you find yourself in that situation? Can you help yourself? Can you clean yourself up? Can you make up for past deeds? Can you do something out of your own resources to ameliorate God towards you, to make Him be propitious towards you, to be happy with you and not angry anymore? Is there anything you could offer God as a peace offering so that we can all just get along? Again, the only solution to this most frightening complication of sin, God Himself. The only solution to God is God. Look at Romans 3.21. But now, apart from law, and I believe Paul here just means law in principle, any type of trying to merit God's favor by keeping rules... Now, apart from law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. That's the good news from Romans chapter 1. Not ashamed of the gospel, because in it the righteousness of God is manifested. Here's where it comes. And it was witnessed by the law and the prophets. That is the Old Testament. Same message. Even the righteousness of God that comes through faith in Messiah Jesus, Jesus Christ, for all those who believe. There's no distinction For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. What is God's solution to the problem of God's righteousness? God's mercy, God's grace, God's gift given by grace. Multiplied words here. To extol the fact that this is freely given of God to those who will believe. A declaration of righteousness as a gift through Christ. And look at verse 25. God displayed this Messiah Jesus publicly as a propitiation. That is, that which satisfies divine wrath by a substitute. A propitiation is what satisfies divine wrath by a substitute. And God did this by displaying Christ publicly as that propitiation in His blood through faith in order to demonstrate His righteousness, God's righteousness. In the forbearance of God, He passed over sins previously committed. He demonstrates righteousness, verse 26, so that He would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God gets to be just That is, maintain his credibility as always doing everything right all the time. And he gets to be merciful to those who have not done everything right, but in fact have done everything wrong. He gets to be the justifier, that is, the one who declares some to be just. And Romans 4, 5 makes it clear, the ones whom he declares just, the ones who believe, were ungodly. Ungodly. Forsake trying to merit God's favor. Forsake trying to fix your own problem. God declares the ungodly to be righteous on the basis of faith. Only God can solve the problem of God. Only God can meet God's perfect standard and forgive sinners. The book of Proverbs says it's an abomination to let the guilty go free and to punish the innocent. God did both We, the guilty, have been credited with Christ's righteousness while Christ the righteous was punished for our iniquities. It is an abomination that God the Son would be crushed under the wrath of His Father that He did not deserve. It is an abomination that when God came to earth, humanity committed deicide. And yet that abomination is our only hope. Only God's solutions bring about Remedy to man's complicated problems. Romans 5.1, therefore, having been justified by faith, we possess peace with God. We possess peace with God. You could never bring this about on your own. Only God could make terms with us in a way that satisfied his justice and offered sinners peace. Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus Romans 8.31, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who against us? There aren't verbs in that verse. It's just a stark statement. If God for us, who against us? And think about all the enemies to the human soul. Enemy number one, the human soul. Enemy number two, Satan, the God of this world. Enemy number three, a world of sinners. And enemy number four, God himself. And now, if God if for if God is for us, who of all of that array of enemies of the soul could be against us? No one. Verse thirty four: Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died. Yes, rather, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of the Father, making intercession on our behalf? When we think about human. Complications, the complications of depravity, they are insurmountable, absolutely insurmountable by human resources. That means that we should never look to human resources to solve those problems, right? When you think about sharing the gospel with somebody, you're not looking to the toolkit of human resources in that somebody to get them out of a jam. You're not looking to the the toolkit of your own resources to find the key to the human heart as if you could unlock it if you just had the right thing to say. And listen, you parents raising those cute little bundles of depravity in your own home and they get bigger and bigger and sin manifests itself more and more and you just wish you would do anything you could. You'd cut off your limbs to just give them new birth and you can't and it keeps you humble and it keeps you small. And you pray, and you proclaim, and you use God's means for God's ends. It keeps us really small. It keeps us dependent on the Lord. I heard Bill Hybels say in a sermon that if you gave him enough time with any human being, he could find the key that would unlock their heart and get them to make a decision for Christ. The sermon was called SALT. It was an acronym for four things I can't remember now. And he went on to tell stories about how he found the felt need of the, the, the rich Chicagoans who were in the yacht club. So he went and bought a yacht and had a yacht in the yacht club so he could find the felt needs of those people and unlock the keys of their heart and they give them enough time and they all came to Jesus. It was impressive because he was an expert. And that's not the solution at all. We talked about this before. Charles Finney thought he had the solution to unlock the keys to the human heart through his new measures and said at the end of his long career, I think it was God's lot for me to bring about tens of thousands of spurious conversions. You can't solve total depravity by giving sinful men what they think they need. That's reaching into the toolbox of human depravity to try to solve human depravity. that we need God's solutions to man's problems. We don't link arms with a world in league, in rebellion against God, to try to bring about betterment of the world. We must go to God and His solutions to solve man's problems. You and I can never overcome satanic blindness in ourselves or in another, but we appeal to the one who shines the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ in the heart. Just like at the beginning of creation when he said, let light be and light was. We depend, we pray, we lean on him. God, we ask that you would help us to depend on you in greater measure each day. Thinking about the world we live in and its future demise, God, we pray that you would use that reality to loosen our own grip on this world and the things of this world, to have greater discernment for the deceptions and the wiles of our enemy, to distrust ourselves and the residual depravity in our own hearts in ever greater measure that we would cast ourselves on your word and your truths, that we would lean on your supernatural resources and your means of bringing about hope and help and life and joy and peace for ourselves and all those around us. God, we ask it for your glory that we might say from you and through you and to you are all things. To you be the glory. Amen.